Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, this podcast is the follow-up. This is the BZ rebuttal. But before we get to that, let me tell you about the sponsor for this month. It is Podbean. You're all in one podcast hosting and publishing provider. If you're looking to get in the podcast game or you're looking to take your podcast to the next level, do what I did. Get Podbean on board. They now offer an even easier way to get in the podcasting game. Now with their mobile app, you can record podcasts on your phone and publish them directly from your phone. So if you're a leader, if you're a Bible class teacher, if you've got content that you want to get out to the masses effectively, efficiently, and for a very minimal cost, go to podbean.com backslash newsworthy. Now, this is the follow-up to the podcast we put out yesterday. This is BZ talking about his book. So let's do it. All right, friends. BZ is back. Welcome, BZ. Hello, Luke. Good to be with you. Thank you. Good to be with you. It Your is. Thanks. Oh, I'm glad you feel that way. Now, you, you might not feel that way after we spend time in person together in May. That well, might change. I'm not worried about it. Okay. Uh, now, last year, Pete Enns came to that. And like, I think our friendship blossomed. Our bromance bloomed after mm-hmm. he was in Malibu. I'm not saying it's going to happen with us. I'm just saying it has happened in the past. Because you, you are both pretty snarky. <laughs> oh, see, I, I've, I've been with Pete. And you guys, you guys are like snark brothers. Do you think I'm as snarky I'm as Pete? I'm just in a good way, though, actually. I, I'm going to take that. I've been called cheeky. I got called cheeky today at lunch. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. I would rather go snarky over cheeky. I would too. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, we might more rock and roll than cheeky. (laughs) And that's definitely you. You are rock and roll. You. uh, I heard you had a good time down at the Spark Conference in Australia. My my good friend Paul Nevison said that you Mm -hmm. did a great job. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. See, I didn't make that connection. You didn't know me and Paul were buddies. Maybe I did, but somehow. Mm -hmm. He's a fellow. Yeah, he's a four, like you in the Enneagram. I mean, you guys could just wallow in your emotions together. <laughs> Did that happen at all? We just can spend all of our time being aloof to one another. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so true. Okay, now BZ, I don't know if I told you this, but uh, I ordered your newest book, "Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God." Mm-hmm. Uh, I ordered a copy of that for my dad for his birthday. Because I thought this is a great book. My dad's a fan of yours. He listens to the podcast. Hey, Dad, thanks for listening. And then, lo and behold, I saw on the internet a 11,000-word critique (laughs) that made me wonder if I'm causing my dad to go to hell because I gave him your book. Do you think there's a chance that could happen? My book's only like... I think my book's only like 45,000 words. <laughs> that is such... Derek, I mean, I, so obviously Derek, you'll have just heard him before this conversation. That is impressive to spend that many words on a critique of a book that's... Yeah, maybe it's 50,000. I don't remember how long. But yeah, it's like, it's like 20% of my book. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, I will give him credit. If I ever get someone to spend that long critiquing me, I mean, I'll take that as a compliment. Did you take it as a compliment to write... Did you read the entire critique? I read the entire thing twice. Twice? Yeah. Good for you. 21 pages printed out like this. Yeah. You pr- and it's there in front of you. Wow, good for you. So you, um, you've been a pastor for over three decades. Three and, and a half. 
three and a half, yeah, 36 years. And uh, how many sermons have you written now? What number are you on? Uh, 3,327 I've written. I'll get 28 (laughs) before Sunday. That is either impressive or a sign of a serious <laughs> mental health is, issue. Um, either way, I'm, that's, that's great. Um, so you've preached that many sermons. I've, I'm assuming that this 20... No, I've pl- written that many sermons. I've preached a whole lot more. Oh, okay. That's how many I've written. How many... Okay. I'm going to follow up on that question, that comment. How many sermons have you recycled then? If you've written 3,000 plus. When I travel, and I travel widely and frequently, I mean, I have sermons I've preached 50 or 60 times. Hmm. So. Okay. So we'll bump that number up for total number of sermons you preach. You've had people critique you before. Have you? Of course. That's how that works. Have you ever had anything? I I, I did a, uh, a series on. I'm from the Church of Christ. We changed our worship style at the church I'm a part of. And someone wrote a 27-page critique of my three-sermon series. That's the longest I've ever gotten. Have you gotten more than um, a 21-page critique on anything you've done? No, but it's not unlike I've done some formal debates. Now, these are, you know, a debate is done live. Mm -hmm. It's not written. It's in the moment. But it's the same sort of thing. What is your process for determining what you're going to listen to, what you're going to read that is critiquing you? Well, it has to be serious. It has to come from a, uh, not from what I call a joker. You know, a joker, that's, that's just someone that's, you know, they're not, you can't take them seriously. They're just, you know, it's, they're being mean. Mm-hmm. It's just taking cheap shots. Uh, yeah, I, I just basically don't engage with those people. I mean, I don't have time. And I'm, and I'm not inclined to. I mean, what's the point? Yeah, I, I would assume there's no way you would look at Derek's critique and go, "This guy's a joker." I mean, he's no, no, exactly. Well thought out. Um, so you. you well, but on the other hand, what what Derek is? He is a thoughtful, reformed thinker. And when I wrote "Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God," I said, before it came out, I said, uh, "This will be generally well received." It won't generate much controversy, I don't think. The hell chapter won't give me any trouble, and it's been the most popular by far, and I haven't received any pushback on that. Even Derek didn't even address that. Uh, But I added the caveat, I know that the Reformed crowd are going to hate it. I mean, they're obligated to. Mm -hmm. It is a direct challenge to their system. And I think the flaws of Reformed theology are almost always the result of the system taking over, and they paint themselves into a corner, and they have to end up defending that which they might not want to defend, but their system requires them to do so. Explain the system. What is the system? Well, it's Calvinism. It's, it's, and here's the thing about Calvinism. It is the greatest, best systematic theology ever developed. Just remember, it's wrong. <laughs> but it's a great system. Explain how it can be the best, but it's wrong. Well, I mean, if, if your approach is, I want to have a system of theology, then um, Calvinism comes closer to achieving that. Um, for example, the Orthodox, which have had a fairly substantial influence on me theologically, they don't have, they don't even approach theology as a system it's they they 
approach it liturgically and confessionally. And if the and if certain parts don't seem to fit, they don't worry about it. Hmm. Not everyone can get to that place where they're yeah. it's okay. What helps you get to the place where if things don't fit, you're okay with it? Well, I, I think I have a much more artistic approach to theology mm-hmm. rather than systematic approach or a uh, oh, if I would say it this way, maybe a scientific approach. I think I'm closer to something of an artist, and that's why I have been as influenced by artists in my theology as in pure theologians. Mm-hmm. So Dostoevsky, Terence Malick, others, you know, have have. Sincerely, Dostoevsky has probably influenced me as much as anybody. Really, you know, I'm really influenced by Brueggemann and N.T. Wright and Stanley Hirewas, but I would have to put uh, Dostoevsky in that category. Hmm. Who is a novelist? Yeah. Well, I quoted him uh, two weeks ago in a sermon, and I said his name wrong based on how you just pronounced it. <laughs> so uh, we're going to just let that be a debatable subject. The uh, the attitude you have of it's okay calvinists aren't going to like this book the reform crowd is not going to be your your that's not who i was writing it for i was not writing this for theologians i'm writing this for people who have an intuition that god is good but they feel like um certain aspects of the bible force them to not fully embrace the idea that God is love. And just to jump right to it, what the book really is about is about violence. It's about the wrath of God as violence, Old Testament violence, the cross as violence, hell as violence, the book of Revelation as violent. I don't know if I, I don't think I ever say that in the book. I don't ever come around and say, this is what this is really about. But that's what it's really about. You have a great line about uh, violence in the Bible is so prevalent because that's the issue the Bible is addressing. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's as direct as I think you can get to almost saying what you're trying to say right there, or you mm-hmm. you did say. Um, so obviously, those are things that are going to be ish- dealt with. Violence is the raging principle for human civilization. Hmm. I mean, it's it's how human beings have arranged themselves is around an axis of power enforced by violence. This is the story the Bible tells. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the Bible starts out and says. There's a man called humankind. There's a woman whose life, they have two sons. One kills the other one, moves east of Eden, and founds the first city. I mean, what is being said there? The Bible is being said our civilization is organized around violent power. And this theme is never departed from, from Genesis to Revelation. Yeah. That's true. That's true. The, okay. I want to circle back. You try to get away from this, I'm going to pin you down. So you are okay with the Calvinist reform crowd not buying your book, not getting into what you're saying. I mean, okay, you're fine with that. But what about... If they're, if they're going to like it, they're going to have to say, okay, I'm, I'm not going to be reformed. I'm not going to identify as a Calvinite. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to buy Calvinism anymore. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's, that's just going to be difficult for some guys that are just professionally tied to that mm-hmm. to do. I get that. Yeah. I mean, I made major corrections in in my theology midlife, but a lot of people aren't going to do that. Mm-hmm. So you're a great template that they could follow. But what about <laughs> the person? I know that was a bit of a cheap shot. I get that. But on, <laughs> but on the other hand, it isn't like I'm just some sort of, you know, 
hippie kid that came along last week and started preaching, you know, peace, love, and rock and roll. Yeah. I mean, I preached PSA, penal substitutionary atonement theory, mm-hmm. uh, in the form of that's how I would give altar calls. I did that for at least two decades. Yeah. I mean, it isn't it isn't that I don't know uh, penal substitutionary atonement. <laughs> Believe me, I know it, and I know the text that you can use. I'm well aware of that. It's just that finally I moved beyond that. Yeah. Okay. Currently, one snarky comment: BZ zero for Luke. Just for the record. <laughs> What about, you're okay with them not reading the book. What about the person who's a pastor who has people who are influenced by the reform crowd and they care about them, they want to love, they want to pastor, they want to mentor, but they are um, rejecting everything about a beautiful, loving God as you describe or others have described and they're trying to figure out, how do I do this? How do I engage? Whereas you're okay to be standoff, not standoffish, but you're okay for them not to pick up what you're putting down. Other people are in situations where they have to interact with this crowd. I didn't write a book of academic theology. It's rooted in academic theology. I'm quite well read in that, but that isn't what I was trying to produce. I was trying to produce a book that can be read by truck drivers and soccer moms. Yep. Um, if and and Derek's critique, I would say I didn't really measure, but I would say at least I think you tell me what you think. I would think at least seventy five percent of it really is dealing with PSA, penal substitutionary atonement theory. Look, and to which I will say I've done a public debate on this, but there are there is a plethora, a veritable cor- cornucopia. That's good. Of books on this subject. I, I can point you to Brad Jerzak's uh, Stricken by God or My Kind Saved by Sacrifice or all the stuff that mm-hmm. people like Michael Harden and others have written. I mean, there's like a cottage industry mm-hmm. of taking PSA. Uh, even even N.T. Wright's new book where, you know, where he, I don't know, maybe, maybe 50 times or 100 times he refers to it as paganized soteriology. And he's going to do the hard work of just grappling with every minutia and mm-hmm. clause and verb in the Greek. And yes, he does say he does come along and say he does see a penal aspect, but only in the sense that he says that at the cross, God is condemning sin in the flesh, not condemning Christ, mm-hmm. condemning sin to which I say, amen. I mean, what we do is we point to the cross and we say, look at there. The sin of the world is condemned because our system is so addicted to violence that when the sinless Son of God enters it, what happens? He gets nailed to a tree. Mm-hmm. There is where God is condemning sin in the flesh. You can call that penal if you like. But what Calvinists mean by you know the satisfying of the wrath of God, and T. Wright will say, no, that's not what's going on. And so uh, we have professionals that have done that work. Yeah. Let, let, let me insert something. You can ask all the questions you want, and but... But on, right there in the first page, in the one, two, the third paragraph, Derek writes, um, uh, he, he's, he's mimicking me. He says, there's nothing to be afraid of anymore. Jesus is what God has to say, and Jesus is forgiving love. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. I don't say that. I shall read from my book. <laughs> you know, page 96. In what what it in what is called the fear of God, what I fear is not God, but the suffering my sin can inflict on myself and those around me. What God calls me to fear is the destructive results of sin, and I take God seriously. 
The shorthand term for that is the fear of God. The malevolent consequences of sin are all too real, but I'm not afraid of God. I used to be, but I am no longer. I am no longer afraid of God because I have come to know God as he is revealed in Christ. I have come to know that God's single disposition toward me is one of unconditional, unwavering love. The knowledge of God's love has made it impossible for me to be afraid of God. You may think such language is reckless. It is not. The peace of no longer being afraid of God has been hard won. It has come by relentlessly seeking to know God as he is revealed in Christ. It is not the result of a liberal, sloppy, pick-and-choose theology. Rather, it is the result of pushing through the dark outer courts of the fear of God into the Holy of Holies, where the love of God shines eternally and dispels all darkness. After years of praying, meditating on the Gospels, and sitting with Jesus in contemplation, I am simply no longer afraid of God. Maturing love is driving out fear. God is not a monster. There are monster God theologies, but they are mistaken theologies. Accusation and scapegoating, the ravages of war, the wages of sin are monsters. The cruel vagaries of chance until they are tamed by Christ in the age to come may fall upon us as monsters. But God is not a monster. God is love. Jesus revealed this to us. If we move against the grain of love, we will suffer the shards of self-inflicted suffering. And we can call this the wrath of God if we like. But the deeper truth remains God is love. So I'm clearly not saying there is nothing to fear. There's much to fear. But the object of our fear is not, in fact, God himself. That's, and then there's a big difference. I mean, I certainly never suggest there's nothing to fear. Of course there is. Mm-hmm. Sin is to be feared. Death is to be feared. Mm-hmm. The consequences of moving against the grain of love is to be feared. God is not to be feared in the sense that I am afraid that God is going to visit violent harm upon me. Okay. W- one of Derek's statements was, y- you focus on... Uh, uh, Matthew 25, the, excuse me, uh, the prodigal son story. Like, that's the parable that, that's Jesus teaching. We see who Jesus well, is about. That's a good parable, I think, yeah. Yeah, right? Okay. And uh, so one of his comments was that you look at part of the teachings of Jesus, part of the parables of Jesus. And the other ones that they're going to jump to, um, like the Matthew 25 text, when you don't take care of... Actually, I do the Matthew 25 text at length in the book. Okay. Right? I mean, I, I deal with it at length. Okay. I, in fact, I get probably more time and attention than the prodigal son said. Okay, so... But, in health chapter, I talk about it quite a bit. Okay, well, not everyone has read the book yet. But, but part of the critique is that there are texts of Jesus that aren't dealt with that seem like Jesus is not that loving because there are texts where Jesus says, we will throw you away. I think the, the Matthew 25 language is into eternal punishment in the NRSV, which is what Jesus would read. Um, what do you do with those passages about... For example, like that one, how do you explain the, uh, they will go away into eternal punishment? First of all, we assume that the prodigal, I mean, the, uh, the parable of the sheep and the goats is an afterlife uh, parable, although that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that when the Son of Man comes in his glory. So there may be afterlife implications. Um, probably there are. I don't know. But I don't think that Matthew 25, sheep and goats parable, is really about the afterlife. It's about the effect that the death, burial, and resurrection and Jesus being exalted to the right hand of the Father has upon nations when they move against the grain of love. That is, if we fail to treat the poor, the immigrant, the sick, and the imprisoned 
as our brothers, see, that we are moving in a direction that is going to create things like civil wars and untold violence, rev- violent revolutions. Uh, you get you get the four horses of the apocalypse running. You get conquest, white horse, that leads to the red horse of war because people don't like being conquered. That leads to the black horse of famine. That leads to the pale horse of death. And these things are just put on repeat over and over and over. Uh, what what look? Jesus warns Jerusalem repeatedly, over and over. He says, "Look, guys, if you continue in your trajectory, you're hell bent against all." wisdom to rebel violently against Rome, you're all going to drag this whole city down into Gehenna and the worm is though the maggots and the corpses aren't going to die and the fire is not going to be quenched. And so Jesus is warning of a literal hell that is impending. If you take Matthew 25 or the parable of rich man and Lazarus, here's the problem the reformed crowd have. They, they want to use Matthew 25, sheep and goats, as an argument for a kind of literal, fiery, post-mortem hell. But then they want to inject, you know, a sinner's prayer and ask Jesus into your heart and, or, you know, be the elect or something like that. That Matthew 25, sheep and goats, is entirely based upon how we treat the poor, the sick the immigrant in the imprisoned. And there's nothing about being saved by, you know, asking Jesus into your heart. That gets imported in there. So. Yeah, you're right. It's the problem that Jesus creates is not solved by the solution that's given with the sinner's prayer. The, the right. solution is you treat people better. So there's an understanding of wrath that this is the consequence of acting outside of the way God wants you to live, the kingdom of heaven life. When you don't do that, there are natural consequences. Divine consent to our own rebellious will. And so this idea of wrath is almost like God allowing us to choose. It's consequential, not retributive. Okay, so, which I, I, I love that, but the text that gives me problems is Ananias and Sapphira. You have... In the New Testament, yeah. the book of Acts. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what that is about exactly. Mm-hmm. But read the text and read it carefully with asking this question. Who killed Ananias and Sapphira? Or were Ananias and Sapphira killed at all? They died. But nowhere in the text does it say that God killed them. Hmm. It, it kind of seems like God did, though. Kind of seems. Yeah. 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 Okay. We're just going to be okay. But it never says that. Yeah. It never says that. Um, yeah. And the result of it was what? Great fear came upon the churches. I don't know. Is that what you want? So you're saying the fear that came on the churches that that was contrary to God's intention for the church? I, I, I don't know that I'm saying that. I, I don't know that I'm, I'm maybe saying it with a question mark. Is that what we want? Great fear upon the churches? Hmm. Okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's reporting an incident that happened. I'm a little bit hesitant to rush right in and say, and it means this. It proves this. Mm-hmm. It's telling a story of what happened and perhaps how they somewhat interpreted it. Mm-hmm. But um, look, you know, I, I have a friend that... Uh, 
he was in college. He was at ORU. And another one of his friends, they're all Christians, you know. Uh, one of his friends was uh, having a, had a girlfriend. He was sleeping with his girlfriend. And then something happened, and he got electrocuted and died. What? And, uh, and, and people started saying, well, see, that's, that's the wrath of God. That's the judgment of God because he was sleeping with his girlfriend. Well, the effect on, on this man was to say, you charismatics are nuts and, and cruel and uh, always trying to discern some sort of meaning in every tragedy that happens. Uh, I'm done with you. And he went off and became a Methodist pastor. It's Adam Hamilton is who it is. Oh, really? That's Adam Hamilton. Wouldn't mind me. You want to know? It's Adam. I have a story that's similar to like that, but a lot more inappropriate. That's how that's how the Charismatics lost Adam Hamilton well, and became a. When when I first got out of school, I went on a hospital visitation with an elder from my church, and he told me about a man from his small town in Alabama who went blind because he was having sex with cows. <laughs> I, I'm speechless. I, but go I ahead. was 24. <laughs> I didn't know what to say then either. But that really happened. And if God made a special, I shouldn't have. Well, I don't know what else to do on that. Yeah, one. I, I, I just kind of shook my head and went on. Okay, um, I'm not going to argue with that. I don't think anyone's going to argue with that story. But um, the yeah. whoever wants that one can have it. Uh, Okay, so in the book of Acts, you have Ananias and Sapphira. You have this problematic story. We don't know exactly what took place, but it is a very peculiar story. Um, One of the things that we also find in the book of Acts is that there are a bunch of sermons, but very few, if any of them, make an appeal to the afterlife as like the the call to action. There's no like, when you die, where are you going to go? That's not in there. But... How, you as a pastor, and even in the book, you talk about your father at the end of his life, correct? Isn't that in the book? When, yeah. when you're being there as a son, so maybe you're not there as a pastor, but when you're in those situations as a pastor, even if the book of Acts doesn't talk about how you understand the afterlife, how do you talk about the afterlife? Well, I mean, I talk about um, that Christ is the Word made flesh that became Emmanuel, God with us. So we celebrate this at Christmas, that the logos, the logic of God became a human flesh, entered fully into our humanity. I'm not a docetist. I believe that Jesus didn't just seem human, he became fully human. So he joins us in life, struggle, sorrow, death. Um, Jesus goes down into death that he might fill death with himself. As the Apostle Paul says, Christ now fills all things everywhere with himself. Mm. So to enter into death is to encounter Christ. Mm. Uh, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But it also involves a judgment that is an unflinching evaluation of our life in the searing, white-hot love of God. And when we are confronted with the perfection of love um, that judges our life. What I, one of the things I resist, and again, I don't think Derek brings this up in his paper, but uh, the, the assumption that there is some sort of fixed eternal state at the moment of death. Um, one of the central components of the joyful announcement of the gospel is that Jesus has conquered death. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. I like it when Jesus amens yep. himself. Amen. I'd like it too. 
and I have the keys of death and of hell. Hades, death and Hades. So, you know, I know Hebrews 9.27 says, um, it's appointed that each man die once, and after this comes the judgment, to which I say, yes, amen. Then what? Then what? I mean, we're, we're here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a passage that, uh, very careful, oh, evangelicals of all stripes, really, but certainly reform. This is not from no. the book, this is the Bible, in case people are wondering. This is, and this is a strict Bible, this is just a, in fact, this is an ESV, oh. so it's like Calvinist vetted. I love that. I know they do. Uh, I use it just because it's the right shape and size. <laughs> <laughs> so, so true. Jesus says, Jesus says this. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those and to those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so we have here a case of what happens at judgment, a post-mortem here, it's a post-resurrection judgment, is, is simply based upon those that have done evil and those that have done good. And even after that, it says those who have done evil face a resurrection of judgment, but it doesn't say it's eternal condemnation in a torture chamber. But again, hold on. Derek doesn't talk about this in his no. paper. I want to talk about something he does. And this is the one thing. There, there are two, I'm going to say there's two things I don't like about it most of it i go okay yeah you're going to support psa i get it i you know i did that for decades and i've read all the books and i know the arguments and and i can point you to a stack of books as tall as i am that you know respond to it um but the two things i really didn't like can i guess one, can i guess yeah you can guess and you should really get it okay, right spirit of marcion that just irritates the is hell is that out number of me. one or number two that's number okay one. uh that's well, no, hold on, because I'm going to respond to that, and then I'll let you guess in a second. Oh, but, okay. oh, now, to be fair, he uh, says neo-Marcionism. Well, what is that? I don't know. What is But that? I just want to be fair to him, because he didn't say real. Uh, that's a way spirit. to smear somebody with that which is connected with heresy, and then back off and say, well, I'm not saying it. Come on. Who was Marcion? Marcion was a second-century heretic uh-huh. who said that Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament— was a demiurge, kind of lesser deity, demon type thing, and had no relationship with the God that Jesus called Abba. And his solution was just to get rid of the Old Testament. And also he advocated getting rid of some of the New Testament, too. People don't know that. but So um, how in the world am I like that? I confess that Yahweh is the Abba of Jesus, I don't advocate getting rid of the Old Testament. I call it scripture. I read it every day. I use it for forming theology and preaching. I pray the Psalms every day. You may not like the way I deal with Old Testament violence and how we should. And I'm willing to have the conversation about how I understand the problem of Old Testament violence. But I'm not a Marcionite. I'm not a neo-Marcionite. I'm not even an almost Marcionite. I'm not anywhere in the neighborhood of Marcion. And that's, you know, and to suggest it, I think, is uh, disingenuous. Okay. And the other can, thing, uh, I'm going to mention the other thing. Wait, 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 we can talk about how I deal with Old Testament violence. No, I want to be able to guess the other thing, though. Oh, you probably won't, but go ahead. Okay, my guess is one of the last lines where he says, the gospel and God himself really is at stake. <laughs> no, it is the last line. Is that, is that is the, the other one? Last, you you yes! got them both. 
Yes. You're two for yeah. two. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. <laughs> you know, the, the paper in. Hold on. Let's, let's stop uh, for a minute and go, wow. Yeah, it's impressive. Yeah. Or, or else it's just clear. That no, those were the two no times let's just stick with the first option. The first option. That's impressive, Luke. Say it one okay. more time. It was very you. impressive. Okay, carry on. <laughs> the paper ends with this sentence. This gets said far too this gets said about far too many issues, but in this case, the gospel and God himself really is at stake. Oh come on. First of all, what is see this this is the mistake that Calvinists make ad nauseum. They turn the gospel into a particular atonement theory. The gospel is not an atonement theory. If the gospel is an atonement theory, the apostles in the book of Acts never preached the gospel. Uh, there are atonement theories. I think PSA is the weakest of them all. But even if it's true, even if PSA is an accurate analysis of what is happening at the cross, it's not the gospel. The gospel is the story of Jesus. That's the gospel. Not a particular atonement theory. So, and, and the bulk of the paper is his defense of PSA. Fine. What's at stake is PSA, not the gospel. Mm-hmm. So, I, that, that's that's so tiring. Oh, the gospel's at stake because you know. I mean, I think about the entire eastern half of the church just rolling their eyes with their long beards <laughs> and their. But the entire Easter Orthodox Church saying, "Okay, yeah, right. The gospel's at stake because we never have." endorsed, never have once believed PSA. So, you know, you're going to say that the Eastern Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox Church, who defined orthodoxy mm-hmm. for us, has never preached the gospel. That's absurd. Yeah. Okay. Again, let's think about how awesome it was that I got both of those right. Um, <laughs> when, you, when you describe their God, their, their understanding of how atonement works and therefore the implications that has on how God is viewed, not their God is different than our God, it's the same God. Um, as a monster or monstrous view of God, could it be just as offensive? Do you think, do you think that could come across that way? Yeah, I, I get it. Um, uh, I, I could, I get it. I'm gonna, here's, but here's what I'm going to say. Are you going to um, read yourself again? Are you re- no, I'm not going to read myself again. It's okay if you do. Uh, I'm going to read Edwards. Okay, Jonathan Edwards, in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, I'm going to read two passages. The first says, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to have to bear you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful and venomous serpent is in ours. Okay, but that's not the best part. Okay, here's the best part. And this was highlighted in a, with a pink highlighter in my homemade copy of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And now, just listen. We're asking, okay, am I being unfair in saying that Calvin's God is monstrous? Well, I'll, I'll let our listeners be the judge. <laughs> Edwards, Edwards, who's, you know, Edwards isn't some outlier in um, – Puritan Calvinism. I mean, he's he's one of the leading lights, yeah. right? Calvin says, it would be dreadful 
not Calvin, Edwards, it would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness of wrath of Almighty God one moment, but you must suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow you up and your and will amaze your soul, and you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all, you will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions of millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless vengeance. And when you have done so, when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what is to come. I mean, the, the phrases like exquisite, horrible misery and almighty, merciless vengeance. No, I'll call that monstrous. I'll stand by. I mean, it's, it's not going to be in a Max Lucado book. I mean, it's not a very, yeah, it's not a very warm, fuzzy feeling. I get. Well, I don't care if it's warm or fuzzy. I, I'm concerned, is it true? That's a good response. Is God a purveyor of exquisite, horrible misery? I, I'm going to go back to it and find it here again. Is God a purveyor of almighty, merciless vengeance and exquisite, horrible misery? Yes or no? I mean, if he is, then I'm going to say, well, I guess I need somebody to save me from that monster. Hmm. Uh, I am convinced that God is perfectly revealed in Christ, that at the cross, we don't we're not discovering what God inflicts upon Christ in order to forgive us, we're discovering what God in Christ endures as he forgives us. Jesus does not save us from God. Jesus reveals God as Savior. That is the fundamental move that I make that is different than the Calvinist. The Calvinist is going to see Jesus saving us from God. I'm saying, no, Jesus reveals God as Savior. Uh, that's good. You know what? That, that makes sinners feel good about being in the hands of a loving God right there. And it's true. Yeah. And the other problem is, You'll you'll have the Calvinist has to say this: what Jesus endured on the cross is what we all deserve. That's nonsense. That is a system that has forced you to say that. So you're okay. Let's just imagine. Let's come on. Um, let's imagine a. Let's get to about the right age. Let's a four year old girl. Here's a four year old girl. She's she's playing. She's in a little sandbox and. Maybe she's got some other friends, and we're walking down the street, and we're having a theological conversation. And I look over, and I see this little four-year-old girl, and I say, see that little girl there? You know what she deserves? She deserves. She deserves to be, well, first we should scourge her with a whip. And then let's put a crown of thorns upon her head. And now let's nail her to a tree until she's dead, because that's what she deserves. Or God should do that. Maybe we can't do it. God should do that, because that's what she does. No, she doesn't deserve that. No, she doesn't deserve that yeah that's disgusting no, he doesn't deserve so so jesus did not endure what every single individual deserves jesus endured what our systems of violent power inflict upon those that owe it nothing violence cannot tolerate the presence of one who owes it nothing our system of violent power is condemned at the cross. The cross also becomes the doorway by which Christ enters into death, that he might conquer death by death, as the Orthodox sing every Easter, trampling down death by death. 
Jesus was not taking upon himself what every individual human being personally deserves. Again, that's a theological system run amok. Yeah, when you go down that road, you end up at that cul-de-sac, and that's where you have to park. And you're right, it's a system. BZ, this was good. I think you did well. I think my dad still has a chance to go to heaven, even though I gave him this book. <laughs> now, um, BZ, you did great, but let me tell you one thing. We've done, we've done many podcasts together. I don't even know the number at this point, but there's been a few. Um, and you even have a prayer school, which I know people who've gone to it have had great things to say about it. Um, very helpful. And it's something you enjoy doing. It's, I've heard you say it's your best thing you've ever done, right? It's, it's, it's what I do best yeah, to help. Okay, we're gonna... it's the, as a pastor, I don't do anything better than teach people okay, how to pray. Well, well. then let me uh, step on your toes a little bit. We've done multiple podcasts together. You teach a prayer school. And let me tell you what Derek did that you've never done. Derek said, hey, let, let's pray before <laughs> we do the podcast. You've never done that. And maybe, maybe you should have him teach like a little s- seminar <laughs> at the end of prayer school about praying before podcasts, because maybe you could take some notes. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I don't have a proper prayer. I don't have a proper podcast liturgy. But may, I have to, maybe may develop have to write a liturgy one. for that. Who knows? Um, That's a good idea. Okay, yeah. uh, "Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God" is a book I highly recommend. If you don't have a copy yet, go get it. BZ, it's a pleasure as always. <laughs> Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by our friends at Podbean, your all-in-one podcast hosting and publishing provider. If you want to get your content out to the masses, go to podbean.com backslash newsworthy. And now with their mobile app, you can do that directly from your phone. Check them out. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. We'll see you back here next time.